This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Miles Danhausen Jr. And today we have a couple of special guests in the podcast studio. We have Coburn Drucart, who is the Digital and Multimedia Director for the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism, a nonprofit news organization based in Madison, Wisconsin. Drucart previously was a senior photo editor at National Geographic, the picture and multimedia editor at NPR, a photo editor at usatoday.com, and thewashingtonpost.com and she also interned in the White House Photo Department. She has received numerous honors, but clearly her highest honor is having her photos published in the Peninsula Pulse. Coburn, thank you for joining us in the podcast today. Thank you, Miles. <laughs> and then we're also joined by Coburn's dad, Tad Ducard. Uh, before retiring to Ephraim in 2010, Tad was a news photographer in Washington, D.C., where he was twice honored with the News Photographer of the Year Award by the White House News Photographers Association for his video work as well as a Lifetime Achievement Award. He now takes photos for area nonprofits and local fire departments and is often also featured in the pages of the Peninsula Pulse. Ted, thank you for joining us as well. Well, thank you for having me. And both of you are joining us this year as co-judges for the photography contest in the HAL Prize, our annual literary and photography contest. So thank you both so much for doing that. I know Coburn, you did it for us last year as well. And I want to talk a little bit about that, a little bit about your backgrounds, and kind of introduce people who might be interested in our photography contest to what you might be looking for when you go through those things. I guess I want to start, Coburn. I mean, your background is really interesting. Listeners who are familiar with Wisconsin Watch and the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism have probably seen a lot of your photographs there and a lot of your work there. If you haven't, any listeners who haven't found that, it is a great resource that does a lot of investigative work that wouldn't otherwise be done and shares it with other publications around the state. Coburn, could you tell me a little bit more about how that organization works and what you do? Yeah, sure. So um, like you said, we're a nonprofit investigative news organization. We're based in Madison, but we cover the entire state of Wisconsin and we focus on broken and failing systems and quality of life issues and government integrity. We are doing stories that are not daily news stories, but we're looking at more system-wide issues that would affect multiple people in the state of Wisconsin. So we do a lot on the environment, the criminal justice system, government and how it works, and just trying to make people aware of what's going on in their state that might not be covered in a daily newspaper. And our investigations often will take months to do it's, it's not uncommon for them to be quite long. We dig deep. We use a lot of data and documents to tell our stories. They're deeply fact-checked. So even though it might take months and months to do a report, by the time we put it out, um, we're very sure about the quality of our investigation. And we also have a unique model in which we distribute all of our content for free to any news organization in the state mm -hmm. of Wisconsin. And that includes all the photos, the graphics, data, documents. We make it all available for any news organization to publish across the state. And we also distribute through the Associated Press. So we get national coverage of our work. And it's, you know, speaking from the Pulse's standpoint, we've co-published articles with uh, your organization before. I've had the privilege of working on stories for the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism before, and I can attest to the rigorous fact-checking and editing process, which is, like, as a writer, is just a, a great opportunity. We try to do a great job every week here in the Pulse, but when you're cranking out a week-to-week -week newspaper with a day or two to do it, 
there's only so much you can do before it goes to press. In the investigations you do, it's double checking sources, it's somebody calling that source a second time and confirming what's reported. I think a lot of people don't understand what goes into when a lot of people will offhand say like, you should do an investigative piece on this. I'm like, that's me hiring a couple of people <laughs> honestly yeah. to do all the other work that we have to do. I mean, I don't mean to discard it that I shouldn't do more, that we shouldn't do more, but that's only just to say like how much time goes into it and how valuable that work is. Yeah. And we also, like you said, we collaborate with a lot of news organizations, both uh, local news organizations in Wisconsin and also nationally. So we um, really value our partnerships. And then we also train um, younger journalists to become the next generation. So we work with a lot of interns and fellows at our organization, which is a great training ground for them. And then they get brought up in our tradition of, of investigations and fact checking. And again, we might have a summer intern, they work on one story, it takes them three to four months. But by the time they're done, they have a clip that might have been published anywhere from the Pulse to um, somewhere that the AP distributes or the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. So it's a really great training organization. And our editors work really hard. Everything gets read multiple times by multiple people. And because um, we publish everything on our website, wisconsinwatch.org, we don't have daily deadlines. So we put out a story when it's ready. And so we'll we'll hold back a story for weeks if it's not ready to go because we want to make sure that everything is 100% accurate. Yeah, not having those daily or weekly deadlines helps you a lot because sometimes you get a story and you feel like it's, and again, like I'm not trying to say that we publish things that are inaccurate or not done, but I, I suppose like every story is sort of not done, right? But a lot of times you have to go like, well, I'd like to get three more sources on here. I already have eight deadlines in two hours. Like, okay, if we had another week, we could do a lot more, but this is the time we have, we have to get it out, which also helps you in some ways that's a curse, but in a lot of ways it's like, all right, that makes me finish the thing and just say enough's enough. I, I've done what I can do. Tab, tell me what your background in journalism was in Washington, D.C. What kind of work were you doing? I worked for the local TV station that was in conjunction with CBS News, and I did much of the national coverage for the CBS for the local and for CBS National. Um, I also did a lot of local news, but uh, the last 15 to 20 years, I was basically doing political news, the Capitol, the White House, State Department. I'm a bit of a history junkie, so I really, really enjoyed being an observer of history in Washington. It may seem fun for someone looking from the outside to say, oh, you're at the Senate or you're at the House. But you're really a part of a, of a mob of reporters and photographers who are covering a daily event, which, as I look back over times, uh, these daily events become huge historical events. And I realized mm-hmm. that I was an observer and part of that happening at the time. Does anything stick out to you from those when you talk about like huge historical events or things you covered? Oh, yes. And I I think the most important ones were blocks of time. I, as a young photojournalist, covered much of the civil rights era Mm. as a photographer. And I can pick out the riots of Martin Luther King, and that was 50 years ago. And then we covered the Vietnam War demonstrations in Washington and the fall of President Nixon. So that was another huge block of time as a photojournalist as I look back on Mm -hmm. daily demonstrations, tear gassing. Also, poignant moments. I was at Andrews Air Force Base when the POWs came back. Hmm. And that was uh, 
another significant moment that I recall as uh, being able to, to realize, why am I here? I remember another night I was with my sound man, and we were at the White House, which was a transition between Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter, and we looked at each other and said, oh, my God, what are we doing here? We're, we're at, the, <laughs> at a transition of power, and here we are at the White House, and it was cold, and <laughs> we're, we're retired, but that was, you know, that was part of our job. It's interesting to think of you doing that job. And like you said, it's, it's not necessarily an individual moment. It's this block of time. It's, when you talk about the civil rights movement, and obviously you can make the case that it's still moving, it's still yes. going on, right? Yeah. But in the traditional history book sense of it, I just learned it as, you know, it's a chapter. And, and sadly, it usually was a pretty short chapter in the history books when I was coming through high school. But in the moment, it's like a day-to-day news story. It's not a finished story. It's not a movement, probably, when you first start covering. It is, there's a march today, and tomorrow there's a speech, and now there's been a riot, or now there's been a shooting, or something like that. So it's all these little moments that become the movement, and it's just kind of interesting to have, to think of somebody going through and, and seeing it that way, when I've only seen it in the sense of a history book. Right, and occasionally I was in uh, more violence that I would have uh, liked to have been in and feel very <laughs> fortunate that I really kind of came out unscathed. And then I, I think I look back, I'm in my late 70s of things that I remember vividly, but they're not in anyone's memory because it was so long ago. Mm. To me, it was a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years ago. Yeah. But we had demonstrations in Washington of three, four, 500,000 people every single weekend during the Vietnam War. It was pretty amazing how the people of the United States really changed the politics at the time. You know, for, for me as a journalist, and I, I work in my hometown, and so you look for resources because if you work in a city, and when I did live in Chicago, there's a huge professional network. There's local journalism organizations. There's local chapters of, of things. So you can lean on people and pick people's brains in a much easier way. I think I'm pretty fortunate in Door County that there are folks connected to here that have great journalism backgrounds, that you have to work harder to find them. It's not like an organization, but like folks like the two of you, Cliff Crystal, the historian for the Green Bay Packers is up here a lot, actually is a part of a family of uh, somebody who used to bartend for me. So (laughs) sometimes I get to pick his brain. And there's a lot of other ones like that. Like Door County is kind of fortunate to have some of that background for a small town community. But I'm curious, so how did you guys end up with a connection to Door County? I'd imagine it's traced to you, Tad. No, it traces to Coburn's mother, my wife, her grandfather, Dr. David Stevens, uh, was a professor at the University of Chicago in the beginning of the 20th century. And he and his wife bought property here in 1917 from Anton Amundsen, who homesteaded the, the land. Huh. And they came up as a newly married couple having their summers off as a professor. And uh, this was the beginning of a literary colony of professors up here. And he was part of that. And the property that he bought years and years ago has been divided through different family members, but most of it's still in the immediate family. Huh. So you guys have a deep connection. I'd imagine even when you lived in DC, you might've been spending time here. Every summer. Yeah. Every single summer. My wife has been here for every single summer of her life. Wow. And I don't know about you, Coke, but most summers. Um, Yeah, most summers. Yeah. And my grandmother, almost every summer of her 
right life yeah and my kids now right yeah so <laughs> yeah it's been many generations that's how that's how my family ended up here. My dad, his parents started vacationing. I think they honeymooned at the Alpine back oh in the thirties or something like that. Eventually bought a small cottage in and when I say small cottage, I mean like the tiny place with a one light bulb in the middle kind of cottage, not today's version of a cottage. And then he would come up here in the summers back in the day when his dad would stay in Chicago and mom and the kids would come and spend the summer and he'd come up on and dad would come up on weekends, kind of that situation. And then they eventually moved here in the 70s. So it's like those, those small connections. And I don't think of my family as like vacationers to Door County, but that's how it started. But beyond that history, it is just cool to see how people end up with this connection to Door County. And then we get these extra resources up here, as I refer to them. You guys are resources. But you guys both been taking photographs throughout the last year and a half. And I'm curious the approach during COVID. I mean, Tad, you go around and take photos at the scenes of fires and car accidents and things like that. And Coburn, you've been trying to cover the state throughout the COVID outbreak. You did some elections coverage for us and for Wisconsin Watch, all sorts of different areas. Photography is generally something where, you know, the best photos are getting up close, getting in the scene with people and and getting their facial expressions. And you just had 15 months of not being able to do those things. So how did you approach it? Yeah, I mean, I think we just always had to go on the best scientific knowledge that we had at the time in terms of staying safe. And in the beginning, the very beginning of the pandemic, it was scary for everybody. You know, the governor issued stay at home orders, don't go out. Um, But we still, you know, had stories to tell. So I think a lot, well, a lot of what I do in general is it's usually when it's not news coverage, um, we do a lot of portraits because usually we're telling people's stories Often it's something that's happened to them in the past, and so they're telling us about what had happened to them. So I always try to make it a collaboration between myself and the subject under any normal circumstance, so arranging with them where we're going to meet, what sort of photo we're going to take. And then um, with COVID, we just decided, you know, everything was going to happen outside. We were going to stay masked. Um, And so in the beginning, we collaborated a lot with um, local news organizations in Madison that were doing daily coverage. They shared a lot of photos with us. The Wisconsin State Journal, the Cap Times um, were very gracious in sharing photos that their photojournalists were out taking. And that's the result of of partnerships and relationships that we've built over the years. They were very generous. And then when I started going out, taking photos up here, doing stories, just met, every, just mostly just met everybody outside. And so that's just what we did. And I think it was still early spring. It was cold out here, but, you know, everyone just put their coat on and, and we would meet outside. And then during the April 7th primary, that was really the first day that I'd been around like a huge crowd of people. And, and that was probably the first day that most people had been around a huge crowd of people. So yeah. it was, you know, taking photos of voting up here in Door County and people had installed all the plexiglass and everybody was wearing masks. And um, then I drove down to Milwaukee that same day and photographed like huge lines of people waiting to vote. And, you know, we just did what we were still doing almost a year later, which was keeping our distance and keeping our masks on. And, and, you know, at first it was like, you know, people were concerned about being photographed with their masks on, but then just like everything, everybody got used to seeing that. And it was like no big deal to just have someone's portrait with a mask on. And then as people were able to get, you know, at first nobody could get masks, but then over time people, you know, had custom made masks and they became a fashion statement (laughs) and what mask you chose to wear, you know, said something about you. And so, you know, we take portraits of people and they were clearly making a choice about their mask to go along with their, you know, their message. Um, So that just became something we incorporated. And then, you know, slowly as the people have gotten vaccinated, we've gotten more comfortable 
going inside places and, and, and meeting people. We had so many discussions here in the office of like, okay, we have our server of the week thing, which is just a, a fun thing we try to do to, in every edition, back to the very beginning of the pulse is just to like recognize the people who work in the service industry, the bartenders, the wait staff, the hotel clerks and all, and the people who generally aren't portrayed in a lot of uh, publications. And usually when we do that, it's a smiling person doing their job. And we started to get people like angry, writing angry letters of us setting a bad example by having a server unmasked. And we're like, well, it's all about the personality. It's not taken in a crowd. It's not whatever. These are people who are working solo now, but it's like putting their face with a mask on just seemed really weird at the time. Eventually we got used to it, but we had a lot of discussions of like, what is the message we're sending to the community? Some people would say that by having people in mass, we were sending two of an alarmist message out to the public. And if we put them unmasked, we were sent two careless message out to the public. Did you guys have a lot of those debates as well when it came to photography? Or maybe that's just something when you're so hyper local, like we are, we, we feel that a lot more. Yeah, we didn't have too many debates about that. Like I said, usually we would just leave it up to the subject we were photographing yeah. and make sure they were comfortable with, with whatever situation. If they wanted to leave their mask on, we did. If they took it off briefly, I would still keep mine on. Yeah. Then we would do that. Again, doing most things outside. So, yeah. It was also weird just to figure out, like, all right, how do I go cover? Normally I would go to this meeting. And eventually you get used to covering the Zoom meetings. There's difficulties and bonuses to that. But even, like, should I go to this person's business and invade their space right now and, and ask them questions. Is this appropriate? Like how safe do they feel? How awkward is this going to be for them? I mean, I knew what my comfort level is, but it's always like, what is what is the other person's comfort level? And yeah. And we also started publishing a lot more submitted photos than we normally would, you know, send us a selfie, send us a family photo, something like that. So sort of momentarily dropping our quality standards for the sure. photography yeah. just to allow for, for safety, <laughs> yep. um, you know, publishing photos that, you know, even now I would say, you know, let's see if we can get, get something better. But yeah. at the time, again, it's like, okay, this is what people can do. This is what they can provide. Again, it's still about like seeing this person. So yeah. if we're going to run a submitted photo, then that's just going to be okay for right now. Yeah. And Tad, you said your approach over the last year really didn't have to change that much when you were out taking photos for the fire department. And maybe describe like what exactly your role is when you when you take photos for the fire department more or less i try to document the scene and i'm extremely careful and i believe that over the course of the last 15 years i've built up a rapport that i have control of whatever pictures i take and make sure that no picture i've ever sent has a victim in it mm. i don't think that that's something that needs to be shown i try basically with a fire department picture to give pictures of a, a broad sweeping uh, idea of the scene. And is that for like archival purposes for the I fire department for the, or is it for them uh, to yes, see what I do the it for what? the archival purposes for the fire departments. Okay. I give them a thumb drive of whatever situation I photographed. Uh, they keep it for their records. Also, um, Pictures that seem to be poignant and good pictures, positive pictures for the fire department. I will have a print made and give them a frame, and hmm. they like to hang them up in their fire yeah. departments. Firefighters are a proud bunch. They are. I feel, though, that that's just a, a very minor part of what I do. The great joy that I have is photographing for the nonprofits up here. Hmm. And to be able to give them pictures that they can use in their publications. Yeah. What are some of the nonprofits you work with? Uh, the Ephraim Historic Foundation, the Ephraim Men's Club, a lot of Ephraim. Um, <laughs> the Bethany Lutheran Church uses a 
picture almost every week in their uh, newsletter. When anybody needs a presentation done, they'll give me a call. If it's a, a service organization, I okay. take it and submit it with whatever needs to be done. I just thought of one that we did for the, the pig for sure. uh, an award of quite a substantial amount of money that people had given. And the check was given to um, the food banks. Mm-hmm. And it, it's my great pleasure to do these kind of things because it's, it's something I enjoy. And um, I'm available <laughs> as a volunteer <laughs> if people need me to uh, document something that they're doing that's positive. Well, and this is a question for both of you. And Ted, it's for you locally, but Coburn, I know you've been in this situation. You know, when you go to a fire or you go to a car accident, like you might have... A lot of times you have somebody injured, you have somebody who might be looking at their business burning down or they're, they're losing their home, but you're also dealing with emergency responders who are trying to do their job. And so I always find it a little weird to be in that situation where you might be asking a question of a guy who's obviously got more important things to do than talk to me, right? Or, you know, you're, watch, you're, you're documenting somebody's one of the worst moments in their lives in many times or a very traumatic moment. So it is a, it's a delicate Thing. I know some places and publications will will go out and proactively try and find that victim to publish the very dramatic in-your-face photo. I know I, I recall a woman drowning when I was probably 10 or 12, and it was on the front page of The Advocate. And the photo that ran on the front page was the woman, and it was, a, I think, a young mother, and her hair was hanging down from the gurney as they were carrying her out. And it wasn't her face, but they, they showed that. And that's what the photo they ran. And I just remember a lot of people being really upset by that. And that's always stuck with me because you're, you're thinking, all right, does that family need to see that in every newsstand in the county? And, and my answer to that question is no, absolutely not. And if I were taking the pictures, it would never see the light of day. Yeah. I, one of my philosophies of, of doing this is I hang back. I, don't, I have a long lens. It's a really good lens. And I can get as good a picture as I need to without getting in people's way. So I make it a point of not getting in any type of emergency responder, getting in their way. I do not have to be in there. The picture's yeah. not that important. Right. And uh, that's, that's my philosophy. I feel that just because I've photographed so many things for so long that I've developed an eye where I see pictures that other people don't see. And there are many a time, I have my camera with me at all times. I'll be driving down the road that looks like just something normal to everybody else and say, you know, I was here two weeks ago and this is different. Something's changed. Hmm. And there's the picture. And I'm more than willing to stop, turn around, go back. Sometimes it pays off. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But that, that's just part of my philosophy to look for something that's out of place that could be a good picture. Hmm. Cobra, what about you? Like when you're in those kind of situations, and like you said, with Wisconsin Watch, you're normally doing stories on things that already happened to people and mm-hmm. getting their story now. But like, have you been in situations like that? And you've probably had editors who are like, we need that photo. Yeah, I actually have covered very little spot news in okay. most of my career. Um, my dad has done a ton of spot news in his career. Like when I was a kid and you would go sit in his company car. I think he had at least three scanners stacked on top of each other. <laughs> one, one tuned to fire, one tuned to police, one tuned to some other emergency rescue. So yeah, this is like your spot news expert yeah. sitting right here next to me. I, I really haven't done that. In fact, I, I have spent most of my career as a photo editor. Prior to coming to Wisconsin Watch, I did not work as a 
daily photographer or news photographer. Wow. So most of my job has been as the editor. So I'm the person receiving the photos and then ultimately making the choice about what what's going to what, go what, and yeah, what's going to help yeah, tell the story. Yeah, what would be published. Yeah. So and and I think and maybe explain what that is because I'd imagine a lot of listeners are like. Oh, photo editing means your Photoshop or Instagram and you're just picking a filter, right? <laughs> um, but as a photo editor, that job is much different. You're really helping to tell the story in its, in its best way. Yeah, and it really is all about story, really. It's, it's conveying information in a way that is best telling a story. So job of a photo editor is, can be quite complicated. Much of it is actually not looking at photos, but a lot of it is just putting photographers in place to make things happen, getting access, um, hiring photographers, meeting with managers, story planning, understanding uh, the legalities of situation, copyright law. Um, It's just a whole host of things, a very small part of which is picking the photo. But, you know, you have to have an understanding, again, of ethics and like, why would you pick a photo? Why would you not? Um, What does the caption say? If you don't have the caption, does that not tell the full story? You know, there's a lot of things that have to go into decision making, fact checking the caption for one thing, making sure people's <laughs> names are spelled right. Ultimately, again, what photo do you need to best tell the story? And is it in a situation like that? It Would it be really important to show something gratuitous? I always like to think of it as like, if that person saw that photo of themselves, what would they think? If that person's mother saw that picture <laughs> of themselves, what would they think? And if, you know, if, if it doesn't pass either of those tests, like don't publish it, right? Yeah, um, it's a big responsibility because yeah. you're, you're really affecting somebody's day. Oh, absolutely. Or weeks. Oh, Oh, yeah. In, in, in a worst case scenario, you're affecting their life. Well, yeah. And especially now with the internet, you publish something, their name's attached to it. You know, that could live in a Google search for years and years and years. So like a lot of news organizations have been changing their policies, for example, about publishing mug shots. They won't publish jail mug shots anymore or hmm. they won't publish. Yeah. Like if somebody's arrested but not charged with a crime, they might not publish that name or photo because again it lives forever on the internet so like I now have a policy of you know we, we do a lot of criminal justice stories sometimes people are incarcerated we don't have access to to photograph them although they they can be interviewed by our reporters over the phone or email but we can't photograph them well even if we have access to their mugshot like I won't run that it's not necessarily fair they were photographed in a situation that you know was somewhat out of their control at the time and so you know I'd rather not run a photo at all. And it can be a question of framing the story too, because especially of the last couple of years, more news organizations have come under fire for instances, say you have a a young black man accused of a crime and they run the mugshot and then they have a white collar criminal accused of a similar crime and they run the picture of him with his family. Right. And you're framing both of those situations of like, well, here's your typical criminal and here is a good family man who just went wrong one day, yeah. you know, and it, it frames the whole story just Absolutely. by the photo you choose to run with it. Yeah. Even subconsciously, I'm, I'm sure a lot of these people aren't going, well, let's frame him this way. Yeah. That's and what you do. That's the other thing is that we try to explain to the people we're photographing because we have such a wide distribution of our photos, like making sure they really understand. Do you understand what you're consenting to when you're consenting to be photographed? Like, do you understand that your photo is not going to just appear in this one paper, but it might appear in like 50 papers around mm. the state and it's going to appear on the internet? and your name's going to be attached to it. And so like uh, bending over backwards to explain to people and and just so that they're giving full consent, especially with children, you know, also understanding like, are you okay having your child photographed? Are you okay having their picture published? So I wonder, you know, another COVID question. It's been nice not having to talk about COVID as much on the podcast lately, (laughs) but there was one thing I wondered if you guys thought this too. A lot of times over the last year, we were just trying to crank out information to get people up to speed on what was happening that day because it was changing so fast. And all right, when, what were businesses going to be able to do? What was safe to do and that kind of thing. But 
in the back of my mind, I was also like, all right, this is clearly going to be something that we talk about 20 years from now that people will look back on and say, yeah, there was this time, you know, I have a one-year-old son now and one day I'll be telling him, yeah, there was a year where there was this pandemic and this is why we wash our hands, you know, and, and here's what that was. And I, I would think about what images do we need to capture that will be a resource for us 20 years from now when we try and explain this to people and what happened. And, and that was in the back of my head. And I think about your election photos mm-hmm. and going around and we may never see an election like that again, where everyone is sitting behind plexiglass and one one use pens and all the things we were doing. So I thought it was really important that we had like great photos that document that day and like the fact that we were scared to go vote. That yeah. may never happen again, hopefully. Yeah. Did you guys think about that at all as you were doing this? That just brought up an interesting scenario that I, I ran across. I, I sometimes think that I tend to think in pictures. And I talked to Chris Hecht and to Aaron LeClaire. And I said, have we documented the COVID response? People getting their shots? The fantastic job you guys are doing? Does anybody know about it? And I got permission from them to go down and photograph their wonderful COVID response of doing five, six, seven hundred COVID injections a day to document 20 years from now or 25 years from now what Door County did to combat the COVID crisis. Mm -hmm. And I also talked to them about what about the food distribution? Have we do we have a picture of that? Yeah, there was no, but that's a great idea. Because when you're doing it, you're just, it's so hard just to do it. You don't think about getting the photos. There's, I've done that even with like fun stuff, like events. Sometimes we forget, oh, we don't and, have any photos of yeah. what we just did. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe because I've been in the business such a long time, I have no fear of asking somebody if I can take their picture. I would say 98% of the time, if you approach somebody in the correct manner, explain to them what you were doing, they're okay with it. And if they're not, that's fine. That's their prerogative. But I always ask. Yeah. So that's part of the way I work. Did you think of it in historical terms at all? Um, yeah. I mean, I think especially because of that election, well, for people that don't know, they also shut down the majority of the voting centers in Milwaukee yeah. on that day. So they went from over 100 normal voting centers down to five. So that was one of the reasons that created these incredibly long lines in addition to COVID and people having to be six feet apart and space themselves out and voting went way, way, way into the night. Um, So that was something else that just, you know, I hadn't anticipated. And finally, you know, I was, same thing, like we did a portrait series. We always ask permission. We explain who we are. And, you know, that sort of thing takes time. You have to make a connection with every single person that you're photographing. And, and, you know, most people, again, said yes. But in addition to taking their photo, you know, you have to get their name, make sure it's spelled right, understand why they're there. What is their story in that? You know, why are you voting today? What made you come out? Why are you waiting in these long lines? And then the same thing for all the people working there. You know, those people put in incredibly long days. And so it was just, yeah, it was a real, it was a historical historical moment. I think a lot because I'm not a photographer and we don't have like necessarily spot news photographers on staff here. We've had some great photographers over the years. More of our thrust being a weekly paper was nature and events and things like that. But I think of like when shipwreck burned and I was there and went there and covered it, talked to some people, but I, I don't always think of it from the photography angle. So I'm writing the story and that was a super hot day. And I think 15 firefighters were taken to the hospital that day just from exhaustion and heat stroke. 
And I was like, I could write that. I could write the best piece I've ever written. And it doesn't have the same power of the same piece with the picture of the exhausted firefighter taking off his helmet, just sweat pouring down his face and just seeing the, the drain on his face makes the whole story more powerful. So it's, that's when you like in a, in a role as a photo editor, you're just trying to be like, all right, how does this picture, it can't just be a picture of the scene, right? Sometimes it has to be because that's all you have. But like, what is this picture that broadens the story and, and deepens the story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's the thing about photojournalists are journalists, right? So they have to understand the story. And so kind of one of my pet peeves is when people are like, oh, can you just go snap a picture of this or that? And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> like, you know, we for photojournalists like to use the term making a picture because again, like you have to understand the story. You have to do research. You have to call the people. You have to set up access. You have to like, it takes a lot of time just to get into the position. And then when you're there, you have to stay a long time, observe what's happening, take a lot of photos, earn people's trust. Like there's just so much that goes into making a picture. So the whole like, oh, that was a lucky shot or, you know, it's like, no, it actually really wasn't. Like it took a lot of work to make, to make this photo. I get that a lot too. You know, oh, that was such a lucky shot. And I'm with Coburn, you know, I've either stayed longer than everybody else or gotten there before everybody else did. Yeah. And now there are a number of people who will give me a call and say, hey, you know, this is happening or we see this. Uh, the maintenance guys in, in Ephraim called me last winter and said, oh, there are two bald eagles down here on the dock in the wintertime. I wouldn't have known it. And I went down there and was able to snap what I thought was a pretty amazing picture. No, you made the picture. I made the picture. You didn't snap it. I made the picture of a bald eagle flying over Eagle Harbor at Eagle Bluff. Yeah. But, you know, I stood there a long time <laughs> waiting for that eagle to fly. Right. You know, so it wasn't just I just didn't pop that out of my car and go click and there it was. That's really I've been guilty of that as a as a writer of it. I'm like, oh, can you go to get a picture of this guy for this story? Or I knew this profile. And, you know, the knee jerk is like, OK, I go get a picture of this guy. I ask him to smile and I get him in front of his business or I get him doing this. And it comes back and I'm like, oh, that doesn't match. And that's on me for yeah. not explaining what to get. Because a lot of times, like, the smiling photo of the person isn't the photo that goes with the story. Right. You know, it's really weird sometimes if you're talking about somebody's battle with cancer or some personal struggle, and then the story is of them, like, at work behind their desk with a smile on their face. It just doesn't match. Right. And, it again, it lessens the power of all the work you did in the writing if I'd have taken two more minutes to explain what I need. <laughs> yes, True. and in fact, I just instituted a photo request form at work just so that the reporters have to write down exactly what's the story, if you know it, what's your headline, why are we taking this picture, because, and then I always well, try- Well, that's a good question, why? Yeah, why? Why does it matter? Well, exactly, why does it matter? Why, why are we taking this person's picture? So I always try to, you know, as much as possible, read a draft of the story, have a conversation with the reporter, really understand what is this that we're photographing. And then again, going to meet the person, like leaving my camera in the camera bag when I first get there, sitting down, talking to them, understanding, why are we here? What is your story? You know, like they're being really, who are you? Yeah. Well, and they, you know, and it's like, they might've already told their story to the reporter, but they'll often tell additional details to me that they didn't tell the reporter. So then I'm making notes, writing that stuff down, like really trying to understand, like, again, why are we here? Like, what are we doing? And so 
most people's inclination is to smile, right? And then I have to say like, okay, but as a reminder, we're doing a story about this struggle that you're having. So yeah. let's, you know, just have them adopt more of a neutral expression. Give me your thousand yard stare. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look over my right shoulder. <laughs> Go sit by the window. No. So, but yeah, no, it is. Again, because I always have to anticipate how are these things gonna, going to match? How is the story and the photo going to work together? I love to do stories of people who do these jobs that are unappreciated. Like one of my favorite stories I've done was a, a story on this guy, Rusty Lardnoise, who worked at Palmer Johnson, was a carpenter there. He passed away like 10 years ago, but he was just like known as this incredible carpenter for boats, like a little different than everything we go at. But usually when you're doing those stories, you don't want the just sit down and smile. And you'll ask them like, can we go get a photo? Well, I'm not going to be able to change and get out of my work rub. I'm like, no, I want you in your work rub. Like (laughs) I want you, not some other version. Right. And that's the same thing too. So, you know, there's two different main types of photos that we would do as journalists, which is one would be a portrait where you're, you know, arranging a time, a location, it's, it's a posed setup situation. And then the other would be more of a documentary scene where you're photographing the person and, and what they are doing. And so that is where I try to, you know, explain to the person, we're just going to observe you, you go about what you're doing, we'll be a fly on the wall. And so those are the types of situation I, I really like to photograph. And there are places for portraits. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, because again, at um, Wisconsin Watch, we do a lot of things that had happened in the past. We, we do rely on portraits quite a bit, but if we can get into a situation where the person is doing something active and that might not be the best time for the reporter to be there because the reporter actually wants to sit down and talk to the person, whereas Mm -hmm. the photographer wants to observe the person. So, you know, even setting up the time of the shoot, you know, explaining to the person, they'll say like, oh, well, I'm, I'm free between three and five, but I'm busy before that. And it's like, okay, I actually want to come when you're busy, (laughs) not when you're free so that I can observe what you're doing. And so it's like, oh yeah, okay. And then if you're working with a reporter, just having the understanding that what the reporter needs is not the same thing as what the photographer needs and just allowing the time for for that. Yeah. A lot of people are like, oh, you're just uh, an editor's or or other people say like, go out there, get some video. You'll make a video out of it and get some audio and we'll do the podcast out of it and we'll get some photos and then do the the print work all from the same thing. And they're very different goals. They're very different objectives. Right. And there are different settings that you need to get out of the person for each one of those objectives. Right. Sometimes you get lucky and they overlap. Maybe two of them will overlap, but it's it's difficult yes. to find that. I've been working on a, a project that I just assigned myself to for the village of Ephraim. And that was the reconstruction of the whole new shoreline for the village. And I decided I would go down every single day from the day it started until the day it ended. And already, after just a few months, this photo document has become somewhat important. Yeah. Because before it started, I went down, Coburn saw the pictures yesterday, I took the erosion on the the shoreline, the whole thing. And now we started with the erosion on the shoreline to... This wonderful, in my opinion, wonderful product of redoing the Ephraim shoreline to where people are are there all day sitting on the rocks, eating ice cream from Wilson's, picnicking on the benches, laying in the grass, watching the sunset. And just in this short amount of time, you've, you've seen this kind of icky area that was totally closed off last year with yellow tape to becoming, to me, the jewel of Northern Door County. Well, and that's interesting, too, because I was just looking through photos with Brett Kosmeiter, who takes some photos for us here, but number one thrust is video work for us at Peninsula Filmworks, but he also doubles as a photographer for, for us. And we were looking through some fall photos for the fall magazine, and he's got these aerials of Ephraim. And what starts as a beauty shot that you're just trying to capture nature, for me, 
as a reporter, I see, you know, when they finished the shoreline project in Ephraim, some people were angry that they, well, these trees are gone. They cut down these trees. And then you can look in the photos and show these people, well, most of those were dead. They were dead. <laughs> they were dead trees. People won't believe you. Even if I could tell you that I sat on the shoreline for the last 19 years straight and people still don't believe you, until you show them the photograph and you, you have it because you happen to have someone out there taking this other beauty shot. So sometimes some of that documentation also helps to move the discussion forward. And that's always what I look at with the pulse here. And when I have to go and see all these people in the bar or the coffee shop too, it's like, how do we make sure that if I could make better conversations up here, that would be like my number one thing because I just hate um, when people are basing whole arguments on things that aren't facts. But I know we're, we're going deep into the journalism weeds here. So I'll pivot a little bit for those who want to hear a little bit more about the HAL Prize. And I think that a lot of your background helps probably what we've talked about, maybe tells some of the people who might be entering that contest, like, oh, here's what I might be looking for. Because I noticed last year when I don't, I don't take part in the judging process at all. And so I'll hand it off for all of our contests. This is, we have some people who kind of um, narrow down the selections before they, they go to our judges, but we have really great judges in all of our categories that are not part of this office. So we kind of disconnected ourselves from the process. So when it came out last year, to me, I could tell, and, and I was drawn to it more, and it's a no knock on any previous judge, but the journalistic bent to the photography selection. And I was wondering, Coburn, maybe like, what was your approach? What are you looking for when you were going through it last year? Yeah, and I obviously I do bring bias as a photojournalist to my judging approach because the sort of photos that appeal to me personally, but also just on a basic level, there are a few elements that make a great photo great no matter what type of photo it is. And so those are just the basic elements of light composition and and moment. So most of photography is about light. And so you're either, you know, wanting to capture light when it's people talk about the golden hour, which is often the time of day when the sun is sort of low in the sky, early morning light, window light, diffused light, shadows, anything that really makes the photo pop in terms of how light is used is one element of the photo. Another element of good photography is composition. How are things arranged in the photo? Where are the leading lines? Where is the point of focus? Where does your eye go? There should be a point of focus, something that you look at. And um, usually um, it might be something in the foreground, the middle ground, the background. There's different layers to a photo, just like any piece of artwork. The last element that I'm looking for is moment. Is there something happening in the photo? Is there a moment that is a storytelling moment? Is there emotion? Is there something that was captured that, you know, makes the photo special than the moment before or the moment after? So all of those three, light, composition, moment, any good photo would have to have one of those things. A better photo would have two of those things. But uh, for me, a winning photo really would have all three of those elements mm. to make it really stand out. You explained that really well. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> That's why you're our judge. <laughs> um, I... I particularly remember flipping through last year and seeing the photo of, it wasn't the winning photo, but it was one of the ones honored, from the fair. And there's just a, a kid at one of the stands in the fair with all the balloons tapped to the wall for one of those games you play. And it just, for me, it brought me back to going to the Door County Fair as a kid or going to Thumb Fun and going down like the Thumb Fun Midway, you know, mm -hmm. the, the four little huts or whatever it was. And just seeing it, I just immediately went there and could picture myself being the kid in that spot again with like, you know, the other carnies and yeah. <laughs> just, just dreaming about like getting that stuffed animal or getting that toy 
or that squirt gun or something. And probably hearing mom or dad over my shoulder going, come on, come on. And yeah. you're like, well, one more, you know, like it, there's a story in one simple picture. Exactly. And I shouldn't call it simple because like you just described, it was a picture somebody made. <laughs> yeah. It was a picture somebody made. Yeah. And, and there was a story there. Right. And it was, it evokes emotion. Um, again, for me, it's a lot of the photos I'm drawn to have people in them. I mean, a winning photo would not necessarily have to have a person in it, but for me, are the eyes in focus? Can you see the person's face? You know, is that the point of focus in the picture? Is something happening? Um, I think something that beginning photographers are afraid to do is to approach people. So they tend Mm -hmm. to stand very far back. And like Tad said, like if you ask somebody's permission, even if they're a stranger, like, hey, I'm I'm a student photographer, I'm um, just taking photos for fun on vacation, or um, I'm a journalist, or whoever you are, whatever you're doing it, if you just tell them why you're there, oh, I I really like this scene, would it be okay if I photograph? Usually people will say yes, and that's often a lot better than hanging back and trying to take a picture from far away, because they're going to see you anyway, and then wonder what the heck you're doing, so you might as well go up and just introduce yourself and and say hello. And Um, if you do that, now this is a contest, an art contest, it might be a little different, Journalism, obviously, you would probably want to get their name yes. and some background information. If you were telling somebody who was like, well, I want to start taking people photos, but what if I take it and then, well, I don't know if they were going to want to see their photo on the cover of a newspaper. Mm-hmm. What should I do? And would you tell them, like, probably get their contact information, get an email so you could say, like, hey, I'm thinking of entering this. It mm-hmm. might be this. Is it? Are you cool with that? Or yeah, I mean, that or would do you be, feel an obligation to do that or not? Well, I always feel an obligation to do that, but usually because I'm taking pictures in a journalistic yeah. fashion. So I always do feel, you know, responsible for telling them I am a journalist. This may be published. Are you okay with that? Because okay. there will always be a person that says like, actually, no, I don't want to be photographed. Like, please don't do that. And then you're just like, okay, no problem. Like you don't want to push. Like if they say no, you just say, okay, no problem. But you know, for a contest, I mean, I guess I like, just in general, I would always encourage a photographer to talk to their subject, even if it's just a feature photo or something out on a playground or a beach or something, just to, you know, even if you're just making pictures that nobody's ever going to see, just say, Hey, I'm a photographer. I liked the scene. Is it okay? Like I said, is it okay if I take your picture? Makes it clear. You're not just the creep hanging at the playground. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you might, you know, you might not know you're going to submit it into a contest, but again, if you've made that effort to just introduce yourself, then let's say again, let's say that person sees their photo, you know, appear in your magazine or in the pulse then they're like oh i remember when that photographer talked to me it's not just like how did my photo end up here it's like okay (laughs) yeah i talked to that person i met them i understand how this got here sure yeah what about you tad what are you in trying to judge and judging is like it's art so some people would obviously be like well how do you judge this And, and somebody asked me that about the prize the other day like how do you judge somebody's writing or somebody's photography like is that really something you should be doing and like, well, there are, like you talked about, there are some standards that you can point to right away that makes something and speaks to the skill of the photographer or the skill of the writer. But like, what else are you, well, would you add to I, that? I to think add? what's going to be fun to have Coburn and I do this together is we'll be able to collaborate. Um, I'm going to probably have different ideas than she does. Um, I think she brings much more of a journalistic eye for being a judge than I possibly do. But I think we'll be able to collaborate and say, hey, this photo I really like, and this is the reason I like it. And we'll be able to bounce it off each other and try to come up with a, with a good consensus of what's being put before us. So I think it's going to be really, really fun to have two people looking at the photograph and maybe come up with different 
reasons why it's good or why it's bad. Is there anything you would tell somebody thinking about entering? Like, I don't want to see pictures of X. I, I would never say that. But what I would say is, please have somebody else look at your work before you submit it. <laughs> like, have an editor, even if it's like your kid or your mom or like the person you live with. Like, please show them that work and say, like, what do you think? Because I just, I think everybody needs an editor. Like, the yeah. like National Geographic photographers have editors, you know, to, to help them pick the best work or if you're trying to decide between two or three you know just show it to someone because usually somebody that is not emotionally attached to the photo will be a better judge than the photographer themselves photographers mm. are like actually really hate editing their own work because you know they were there they know what went into it they know how long it took they know how long they waited for the eagle to mm. take flight and they might think it's better than you know they just might have a different emotional attachment to it so having having a sort of non-partial person look at it possibly before hitting the send button that that would be my that would be my uh, advice the hal prize this year is is very expansive in the type of photographs that we'll be looking at so i think we have to kind of take that into consideration this year yeah that we're we don't know what we're looking at you know yeah. if we were judging sunrises as a category that would be one thing or sunsets as a category that would be another thing or how about pictures? Of, do you ever get pictures of Cave Point? Here? Yeah, we might have gotten one So what I'm saying is when we look at the overall picture yeah. this year, we'll kind of have to decide on what non-category-wise are really the best images. Yeah, that's true, because you could have a wonderful portrait and a wonderful landscape, and, and they might both be outstanding. And how could you say which... Which is better. Because so they're different subjects. Because they're yeah. totally different, right? So at that point, it does come down to, you know, does this evoke a feeling? Is there emotion? I, I like to look through pictures on a first pass somewhat quickly and just sort of check my gut reaction of like, wow, like, did I react emotionally to hmm. that picture? Like, did that make me say like, wow, or oh, or like, you know, <laughs> like, was there something that made me have an emotion? And, and yeah. for me, that is also sort of a good gut check on a photo. And the reason I, I will do that is because in judging, sometimes, you know, you get down to the finals and you're just looking at the same picture over and over and over again, like this one or that one or this one or that one. And at that point, it's, it ceases to evoke that same emotion because you've already seen it. A number of times so i that's, do always really try to re remember what was my first emotion when i saw this picture and and that might weigh because that's me. the way the the reader is ultimately right. or the viewer is going to experience it too right. they're not going to look at it 40 times yeah they're going to look at it once and it's either going to hit them or not right that's a really interesting take on that i think i'm guessing from what you guys have said and and what i would say too as a, just an editor here at the pulse is you shouldn't send a cave point photo but if you're going to send a picture of cave point or X lighthouse or this beach or whatever icon it might be. How is it different than the millions you've seen before? Right. If exactly. you're going to win the contest, I mean, for your own enjoyment, for your vacation catalog, whatever, it's going to be great. Like I've taken all those photos too, and I still take them all the time. But if you're going to enter it or send it in for publication, what is the angle that's a little different than everybody else has taken? And, and Tad, you probably experienced that a lot in covering sort of like mob scenes of Washington, D.C. <laughs> with 50 <laughs> photographers there or 50 videographers there. And sometimes you're just all getting the same thing. That's the way it, the way it is at a press conference or something like right. that. But you have to approach it. And like you said, you get there early, stay late, do something different, find a different angle 
on that thing and you might be able to tell a really cool story about cave if somebody finds that cave point story that's different yeah i mean that that is a great photographer <laughs> yeah yeah and i think and, and you know i've looked at a lot of photos in my career and you can usually tell like did a photographer work to make this picture like did they get down low did they get up high did they did they compose it purposefully you know it's not just a snapshot of their kid with an ice cream cone but like what makes it special did they did they work to make yeah. that photo and i I feel like I can often tell there was some thought put into making the photo rather than snapping the photo. So, <laughs> yeah. And just basic, like, technical competency, I would say. Like, don't submit a picture if it's out of focus, you know. Or if you think the judge won't notice that it's slightly out of focus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we will. <laughs> and, then, and then also, I mean, we haven't really talked about this, but, you know, again, as a journalist, like, we don't Photoshop our pictures. We don't apply filters. Mm -hmm. So um, we haven't really talked um, what the rules would be for submitting manipulated photos. Again, as a journalist, that's something we don't do. And, and so I, I tend to be attracted to pictures that are that are not highly manipulated. So... You know, I guess that's just something we'll have to, to decide. Yeah. And, and sometimes I can't tell. Right. And, it's it's and, yeah. and I can't so always tell either. There's but. not a way to, to do that. But you can tell when somebody's added a bunch of what like we call in the office, like God rays to a photo. Mm -hmm. or, or there are some edits that are pretty obvious. <laughs> I'd imagine you guys are in the mindset of like, yeah, that's probably not going to make it past round one. That would be my, that would be my take <laughs> on things, you know, and, and, and I, yeah, sometimes I will get really photo dorky and I'll dig into the file metadata and check and see what aperture somebody used and what, you know, what kind of camera. And so sometimes you can get a little bit of information um, hmm. on how the photographer made the photo from, from, wow. the, from the file data. Not that that would influence <laughs> the judging, but I do like to snoop <laughs> sometimes just on the, on the, on the back door. Well, thank you both for coming in and talking about this and, and going through the process. Hopefully this gives a little more guidance to people who want to submit. And I don't want it to scare anybody off. Some people, somebody out there might just take a random photo and not do the work and it might be great. And so still, if you have a great photo, submit it. Oh, absolutely. I don't want to dissuade anybody. Also, I want more entries. Uh, <laughs> but hopefully it also inspires people who are really dedicated to the craft to be like, hey, I want to, I want to measure up to this. I want to, you know, you're like me and a writer, you, you want to be judged by other great writers and and meet that standard and hopefully other photographers will do that with you guys yeah and then also thank you for your contributions to the pulse as well over the years and for being part of the hal prize yeah. and i should mention the deadline for submissions is september 15th and then the the results will be announced in early november so the timeline's a little different than it has been in the past we used to release this in late july early august one of those reasons was because at that time we had an even smaller staff and just wanted a break. So we would do the lid <laughs> issue so we didn't have to do all the work. So we've pushed it back now because we are very busy in the summer. Thank you both. Thank you, Miles. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.